Hello and welcome to episode 41 of The Thing About Golf, the podcast series from Golf Australia magazine that explores the eternal mystery of why people get so hooked on this, frankly, absurd game. My name's Rod Murray, and on this episode, my colleague John Huggan brings us a fascinating discussion with two-time US Open winner Curtis Strange, a player who, honestly, I probably didn't know enough about prior to this interview, but came away with a changed opinion. John Huggan joins me now to set up their talk, and Huggy, I suspect I'm probably like many outside the US in not really knowing much about Strange, apart from his two US Opens that he'd bob up on commentary occasionally. Uh, of course, that unfortunate interview he did with Tiger all those years ago, the, <laughs> the You'll Learn, which I note you uh, you definitely avoided chatting with him about, which is yeah. fair enough. He's much more thoughtful than I expected. How do you know Curtis Strange so well? The two of you clearly have quite a good rapport. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've known Curtis a long time now. I mean, uh, from my time at, uh, at uh, Golf Digest in the States, um, it's a long time ago now. I mean, I left 25 years ago, but... Um, I'm much more familiar um, with guys of that generation than I am with the the modern American players. Certainly, um, even now, you know, I can call up the likes of Marco Mira and Curtis and those guys and and get them to tell me things. So, um, and Curtis is a good guy. I mean, I, I'm not sure that uh, that he and I have much in common politically, but. Um, Certainly, when it comes to golf, he's he and I are pretty much on the same wavelength. Yeah, although you do have a couple of fun, good, fun little sort of disagreements, which I think is fantastic. It's what the game needs—a bit more debate. You and I are very guilty, I think, of being in the bubble where we talk to people who agree with us all the time. We need to get out more and get some of that disagreement, and he gives us a bit, which is fantastic for our Australian listeners in particular. Huggy, I guess I remember Curtis Strange playing here quite a bit, but I never really make the connection that he did. He talks very fondly of his time in Australia, which I thought was. Not all American golfers who've come here for the money get it. I felt like he did get it. <laughs> yeah, well, he won three times yeah. in Australia, which uh, I hadn't appreciated until uh, I did a little bit of research on him before we talked. And uh, yeah, I mean, he, yeah, I'm, I'm not that surprised that he did well. I mean, he had the kind of game that, um, I mean, Curtis was just a really, really good player. I mean, he, he won pretty much everywhere, although I did, uh, I, I do give him some grief over his. Um, you know, absenteeism from the Open Championship. I mean, he, most notably in 1985, he uh, he skipped the Open at Royal St George's and then played in the Dutch Open the following week Ooh. because he was being paid to do so. Um, I've routinely given him grief for that over the years, and he didn't play in '84 or '87 either. Um, so, which he, I think he says in the interview that uh, how much he regrets yes. all that. I mean, that was when he was at his peak years and. You know, goodness knows he could have won the Open. Um, mm. But he did, um, he's, he certainly rectified that. I mean, he shot a 62 at St Andrews in the Dunhill Cup, was the course record at the time, against Greg Norman, mm -hmm. no less, at that day. Um, so, yes, I mean, he, he, that, why he decided he wasn't going to come and play in the Open when he was at the very peak of his game is a, a mystery that only he can solve, I think. But, um, yeah, I mean, he was, he was a terrific player. And I've always liked him, and... and the the reason he and I got one of the reasons he and I get on is uh, way back in the day early on when I, I first met him he said oh yeah he says I I know you he says I, I I like the way you write you've got some vinegar in you I like that because I've got vinegar in me too <laughs> <laughs> well, which is very true it probably explains some of that impetuousness of youth of turning his back on the open he's a very fiery character hugging I could imagine him as a youngster saying the open I don't need it it needs more more than I need it. I could I could see him doing that and then growing up and looking back and thinking to himself, what a prat you were. 
he seems to have that capacity, which I think is maybe what I found endearing. I was surprised that not all Americans get it when it comes to giving a bit of stick and needle. He seems to be one who does, which probably explains in part why the two of you get along. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, most Americans, they, they, they don't get the concept of, of which is common here and where I come from and certainly where you come from, is that the, the more affection you have for your mates, the more abuse you tend to give them. <laughs> yes. that, that is extremely foreign to most Americans, but Curtis is he's not he's not your typical American in that respect. No, indeed. Well, he's been a great contributor to the game. Uh, he certainly spoke wonderfully, I thought, about the Ryder Cup and his experience as captain. Of course, we forget he was captain the year of 9-11 when the Ryder Cup got delayed. Mm. So his captaincy was a sort of a three-year ongoing thing and through all that there was some really interesting stuff about that in his times here in Australia and he talked I thought very sensibly about well not so sensibly about the US Open and how it should be set up but very sensibly about Lynx golf and why he like many I think came to love it as opposed to loving it at first yeah well I mean he, he does um, he's always <laughs> I suppose it's not surprising is it that he's a fan of the old style US Opens if we can put it that way where it was all about you know Fairways and greens, narrow fairways, thick rough. I mean that he thrived in that environment. I mean, as as obvious from his record, so that that he's a fan of that is no no great surprise. But I think he's he's probably guilty of you know thinking of what was best for him rather than what was best for the game at that point. And you know, I did I did get into him a little bit about that. But um, he and I have talked about that a million times, and he's never going to change his opinion. Well, Huggy, I really enjoyed this chat. I think our listeners will as well. It was fantastic to hear. Uh, Curtis's thoughts on a whole range of issues and it's been great of you join us today so thanks for that and let's let people get on with the interview my pleasure Curtis Strange welcome to the thing about golf podcast I always start with the same question on these things what's the thing about golf for you oh it's a pretty broad question um I think it's um you know kind of the joy and the excitement and the thrill all the above that you can have your entire life with it. Um, uh, you know, we all started off very young in the game and, and I did, and I fell in love with it. And just because I don't play anymore or when I do, do don't play any, don't play very well. It doesn't mean I can't still enjoy it as much as I ever did. Um, I still think about it. I still, you know, think about swings and putts and, and some of these young kids make me, um, think that how they've reinvented some parts of the game but uh, uh it's it, it's a game for a lifetime but that's a bit of an understatement you can play it and enjoy it for your entire life i think i'm right in saying you got into it through your father your father was a very good player in his own right um but sadly died when you were quite young um talk to me a little bit about that and how what age did you get to could you beat your father I mean, that's maybe the first question. And obviously, you had some built-in competition and a twin brother as well. But t- tell me, talk me through that a little bit. Well, I, you know, I was lucky enough. It's all about access and in any sport or any endeavor. And my dad was a club professional, PGA club professional, and so I had access to the to golf at an early age. And it doesn't mean I had to, you know, fall in love with it like I did. My brother, I have a twin brother, identical twin brother, and he. He played baseball and football, so he went there. Still played a lot of golf and became very good. But I just started going to the golf course when I was nine years old and and hanging out all day long and during the summers and and just enjoyed every part of it. You know, the business part of it, the the practice, the playing, you know, working the golf shop, uh, emptying the Coca Cola machine every night. I mean, just all the little things I enjoyed. And 
and, and it never stopped. And, and he died when I was 14 years old. So I never got the chance to beat him because he was quite a good player. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but uh, it, I'm sure the time would eventually have come uh, <laughs> just as it did with my boy uh, and, and me. So, uh, uh, you know, I just uh, I was very, very lucky to have that access and um, which a lot of people don't. I mean, it's uh, it's just it's the way of the world. And, and, and that's the kind of the big topic now, you know, getting more people into the game and getting more of this, more of that. Well, you know, it, you know, it is about golf and tennis are or elitist type of sports and uh, more so in the U S than, than, than overseas, I, I think. Uh, and so, you know, there comes, you know, membership at a club or, you know, certainly the, the, the municipal clubs are not as uh, abundant as they used to be. And, and that's just strictly financial, but you know, the first tier organizations and all these inner city uh, uh, clinics and, and, and golf projects are wonderful. I mean, they're truly wonderful because we want to give access to everybody in the world, but it just doesn't quite work out like that because where's the follow-up? Where can they go play? Yeah, I always think that the a lot of these things are they're noble, as you just said, but they're, they're slightly unrealistic. I mean, there's only so many golf courses and so much access and so many golf courses close to big population centers. It's It's kind of unrealistic, I think, sometimes. Yeah, and, and 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 quite honestly, the the one the, the the one reason the access isn't probably as much as it used to be years ago is the caddy programs mm. over here. They don't exist anymore. Very few elite clubs is where they exist. And what happens when you when you eliminate the caddy program and go for the electric cart is you don't have access to a lot of these young kids who wouldn't ordinarily ever see the golf course. And and I don't care what race color, creed, anything you are. That's how a lot of people got into the game years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How soon were you, was it clear to you that you, there was some talent there and that this was something that you could be good at? Because sometimes, <laughs> well, it, ta- sometimes I, it takes a little while, but I get the feeling it was quite quick with you. You know what, I, 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 I well, it's interesting you say that because I think so many times we golfers question our talent every day. Mm. You know, we... You know, we are the most insecure lot of, <laughs> of, of any athletes, I think. You know, we're, why do we always mess with our swings or our putting stances or every night we lay in bed and said, you no good playing son of a bitch, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> those kind of things. Yeah. So uh, I don't know, John. I, you know, it's a progression. You went through the same thing. You, you play junior golf. You play with your kids at the club. Uh, you beat some of them. Then you go on to – playing with some of the older memberships and you eventually beat some of them. And then you go on to state tournaments and you beat some of them. I just, it's just all part of progression. I don't think you ever really sit down and say, you know, I'm pretty damn good at this. I don't think you ever say that in your life. Uh, but then you go to college. Even when you're number one in the world, come on. Well, I, you know, I don't think you ever sit down and say it to yourself. I mean, quietly once in a while you might say yeah that was that was a pretty good shot over there on 18 on sunday afternoon or but i i was never like that I, you know i just uh you keep progressing and you keep moving forward because you hit enough bad shots out there every day to always keep you know a reality check set in at some point in time now you know then you go into the tour and you start playing well but i think golf always treats you like you know, don't don't ever think you got it. Don't ever don't ever say publicly, 
Mm. Uh, don't say anything publicly that might be stated as, you know, cocky or arrogant. Yeah. Uh, is, is that why uh, you had a slightly pissed off air about you most of the time on the tour? No, no. Is that, that, is that slightly me. unfair? You know, that was just me. <laughs> you know, you know, I just, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. We all have these outward appearances. And I stopped making excuses for myself a long time ago because mm. I like to compete. And, uh, and everybody likes to beat somebody. And it's just the way I am. It's uh, I like to think I have another personality with a beer in front of me, but uh, uh, it's just the way it is. And, you know, I always felt like I, I didn't have quite the, I look at some other players, it looked like they were, you know, God's gift to golf swing, hmm. you know, and I felt like I had to work at it hard. And so therefore you keep working at it and keep grinding at it and keep, you know, and, and because of that work ethic, you, you, be, you become better than that other guy that was, you know, gifted and less less motivated. Yeah. Plus, the the public perception is not always the, the reality. The, the two examples I always think of are uh, Ben Crenshaw and Ernie Els, both of whom have got, you know, this gentle Ben and you know, the Big Easy nicknames. And they've both got vile tempers, terrible tempers on the golf course. So, you know, you can never really tell. Well, you this golf will do it. This golf game will do it to you, won't it? <laughs> It'll make the nicest people look like villains out there. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, I'm, I'm doing a slightly starting off with a bit of this is your life stuff. I mean, I know you went to to Wake Forest and played in the Walker Cup um, before you turned mm-hmm. pro. Um, talk to me a little bit about those things, those experiences. You know, that's part of this progression. Is uh, you know, you finish high school and you play a lot of state golf, and you get a you get a scholarship to a great golf school like Wake Forest and 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 so now you now there's even more pressure because you got to live up to that and and you go there but the, the best part about college golf is that you're around three or four really 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 top-notch players every day mm. and you compete and you learn from each other and that's the part of this swing guru stuff that I don't get sometimes is that we learn from each other either watching or discussing over dinner or playing a practice round and asking, you know, a guy a question on how did you hit that shot? How did you hit that? You know, I never was, I never got to be around Seve that often. I played a lot against him, but never played a practice round or talked mm. off with him much. But, you know, your guys, you know, Seve, how did you hit that shot or that bunker shot? You know, you learn from these guys. And uh, so, you know, then you, and then you, you move on and, you know, going to the Walker Cup, in 75 at St. Andrews was one of the great thrills for all of us. Um, we didn't know quite what we were getting into and yeah. everybody who's ever played the old course knows exactly what I mean. <laughs> Here we are, but there's 10 of us. I believe it was 10 on the Walker cup, right? Yeah, that's right. And so, and, and eight of us were below the age of 22, I think seven of us. And so we were kind of cocky and, you know, we thought we might win. And, mm-hmm. and then we go to this place. It looks like, any, unlike anything we've ever played in our life. But there you learn all of a sudden, in a matter of five or six days, you learn to have these shots and the way this golf was played and the way that golf was played. And we came out of there much better players. Mm. But so there was a bit of pressure on you in 75, to be honest. I've just, I've just finished writing a story on the 71 Walker Cup, which was also at St. Andrews, which is the one that uh, GB and I won. The only one that GB and I won between 1938 right and 1989. Stop. Come on. Stop. 75 was never an issue. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a pretty good team. You know, I'm, I'm looking at it here. It's uh, There's some pretty good names in it. 
Yeah, we we were we had some some good young talent and some old talent, Benny Giles and hmm. Bill Campbell was the old guy on that team. And um, you know, we had uh, I, I remember, uh, gosh, I can't remember the players I played now, but they were wonderful players. One I still see used to see at the Open Championship a year the the uh, big blonde hair, curly haired uh, gentleman. But anyway, you have you you make friendships that last a lifetime or something like that. And we were fortunate enough to win that time, but. Uh, uh, it just it was it was good stuff. Uh, how did you figure out St Andrews then? I mean, what I've, I've talked to the as I said, I've just done this story. So I talked to a bunch of the Lanny Watkins, Tom Kite, Steve Melnick, Vinnie Giles, and Vinnie admitted that he he never figured out the golf course in seventy one. It it was just beyond him. It, it took two or three more visits for him to actually know what the hell was going on. I you know I I'm not going to say I ever figured it out. I think that. Um, uh, going over there. I went back the very next year um, to play in the British Amateur simply because it was at St. Andrews. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think I ever really figured it out until playing numerous tournaments over there. And then one year in the, in the, uh, in the, um, uh, the Dunhill, that old team event that we used to play. uh, Which moved into the event now, but I went there and I don't know, five rounds, never hit it in a fairway bunker. And um, I figured out, I felt like I finally figured out the proper way to play. Um, you didn't do it all the time because obviously you miss shots and elements, but the proper way to play the golf course. And it deter- it's determined on how well you actually are playing and where the wind's coming from. But <clears throat> left and you know, there's a reason why every whole location in the Open Championship every day is as far left as they can get it. Yeah. Because the safety net is off the tee is left, and then you can't get to that whole location. So, I mean, it's interesting the way they set up the golf course um, during the Open versus other tournaments. But it was a, you know, it was a, you know, my 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 deal was, you know, it depends on how well you're playing, and then you you take the route that you feel like you can play left. Left off the tee sets up the tougher second shot, but that's the way I, I like to do it. Um, uh, and you, and it, it's just, it's an interesting golf course. You couldn't recreate it. The one thing, John, I never was able to do that I would have loved to do is play it backwards. I've done that. Yeah, it's, a, it's great fun. Yeah. And it, it really and, looks like it. And some of the bunkers start to make sense when you play it back. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The bunkers, you, when you play it normally and you say, what the hell is that bunker over that green for? Yeah. was for the entrance on the other way. Yeah. It really does. It's, it's, it, it would be pretty cool to do that. Yeah, I think they, they actually played a British amateur there back in the sort of late 19th century, that way around. So it yeah, has been, yeah, has been that used. Would be, that would be, you know, they could do that now. Hmm. They could do that now. I mean, to me, it would be just the same type of golf course. i tell you what, so the, the second shot to the, what is the 17th green, which is the first hole, first tee to 17th green, Tell you what, you better hit it near the fence to have any to be hitting straight down the green because it's impossible otherwise. Oh, I know. Well, it's impossible the, the other way too. So, what difference does it make? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, talk, talk to me a little bit more about the Walker Cup. I mean, uh, you know, the was there a shot when you were playing the course there that sticks in your mind, or one then practice that you thought, "What the hell? How the hell do I play this?" I mean, what is a does your memory stretch back that far? I know it's a long time ago. Oh yeah, I think the second into eighteen, we were all kind of all kind of wondering what type of shot we should play. Um, we all decided low, you know, bump and run it through the 
the valley of sin there. But, uh, you know, there was a number of shots. I think that was the shot that that type of shot was what we all were uh, learned a great deal about that week was, you know, the, the, the low shot into, uh, to 12, you know, we all felt like we could drive the green almost, yeah. except for the bunker that sits right in front of the green mm-hmm. 20 yards. As long as we escaped that. And then we had that little bump and roll up and then maybe on the par five, 14, the bump and roll over the green, those type of shots is what we weren't used to playing at all. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, never did. So we had to learn. And, you know, because you have, you know, the ability to play the game, you learn very quickly, but it's all about trusting yourself and believing yourself that you can do it too. Mm-hmm. Well, before we, we move on from St. Andrews, I did I did want to go past it without bringing up your 62 um, <laughs> in the Dunhill, the Dunhill Cup that you mentioned a minute ago. Um, clearly, you'd figured it out, although I must admit, I'm going to slightly put an asterisk next to it. The, the course is a bit easier in October when it's a bit softer than it is in July, generally speaking. Is that fair? Stop. You know what? That's, <laughs> when, you, when I hear you people say that, you people, any any naysayer on any record of some of some significance, say that. You know what it was? It was a sixty-two, and I'm standing by my score. But you know, it was kind of fun. It, I don't. It was wonderful. It, it, it no longer stands now, so uh, I can say that. You know, it's, it's not part of history now. But it's it's. I, I played it in a in a in a match that really didn't mean a whole lot. Be quite honest. You know, when I look at records of good rounds, John, my immediate thought goes to uh, what the situation it was in. Was it Saturday or Sunday yeah. when, of a tournament when it meant something? Yeah. yeah. You know, playing out there with the guys, you know, early Saturday morning at St. Andrews, shoot 62, it, it's not quite the same thing. Um, so it was a, it was fun. I, I, I never forget, I made about an eight or 10 footer for par at 17. And then I made about a 15 or 18 footer for birdie at 18. So that was thrilling. It really was knowing full well what the record was. Yeah. But, uh, uh, I, I, and then I was disappointed. The, the, uh, the gentleman in charge some years later didn't acknowledge the fact that it was a record because they put in a couple of new tees with Jesus. They put in tees forever on that place. So oh, man. Some anyway, of them, some of them are not even on the golf course. Let's be honest. Well, exactly. Yeah. How can you say it's part of the golf course when 17 is not even on the property? Yeah, I, I managed to um, to piss off uh, Peter Dawson, the RNA chief at the time, um, when I, I wrote one year just before they, they put all these new tees in for an open. I said, this will be the first open ever to be played on five different golf courses at the same time. <laughs> That's right. Which was That's true, right. which was true. But it was fun. It was, you know, it was fun to have it for a while. And and uh, I got home and, and a couple of months later, Sarah gave me an, an a sterling silver scorecard, the record just as it was on the paper and it was pretty exciting and it's still on my wall so it, it means it means more to me than i might lead on to yeah. trust me on that yeah. one yeah anyway and um, to return to the theme we touched on earlier i mean at what point during your um, when you went to college do you think i'm turning pro at some point or when did that decision get made that you thought well i'm good enough to do this you know the john that was that was decision once again the progression uh i i played very well in college for three years and and quite frankly, we didn't have enough mom and, and the family didn't have money because dad had passed years yeah. before to, to play Amher golf the next year. So uh, I took out a loan uh, myself, a personal loan to be able to play golf for another three or four months and then to bank me uh, for my first three or four or five or six months on tour. So I started, I turned pro 
uh, $10,000 in debt. I was going to ask you how much it was for, but you've just told me. Yeah. No, it was $10,000 is not a lot, but you know what? A 21-year-old can go a long ways on $500. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, uh, you know, it was uh, something that I felt like I had to do, and I did. And, and, you know, obviously it turned out okay, but uh, I felt like always felt like I abandoned my my school and my teammates. But Jay Haas and another good friend of mine on the team were all leaving. They were a year older than I was, so I felt like it was time to move on. And and so I did. And uh, it was uh, it was it was the big biggest decision that I'd ever gone through. It was it was unbelievable the the, the anxiety mm. of, of leaving a a comfort zone of your university and your fa- and basically it's family too. Yeah. You're leaving and now you're really on your own. And, and shortly after that, Sarah and I got married. So not only was I on my own, I was depend, I was responsible for another person. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was, my gosh, it was, it was difficult. It was a lot of pressure, but Hey, that's, you grow from that and you learn from that as well. Do you think that there's, there's not enough of that? These days, I mean, it, it, it seems like there's a causative might be too strong a word, but guys turn pro with money already in the bank. Uh, there's contracts in place and, and there's more money to play for. It, it's a very different world now than the one that you joined. Um, good and bad side of that. You know, it's all good, I guess. Uh, you know, the money really doesn't shape the, the person uh, too much. Um I still always will believe if, if you come up the hard way and you you struggle a little bit, both with a game um, or finances, uh, it, it makes you a little tougher maybe. What does that mean? I don't know. It makes you appreciate it a little bit more. Yeah. It makes you work maybe a little bit harder because you have nothing to fall back on. Uh, that's that's the old school in me talking, but I, I, I see that in – and, and young kids a little bit and, you know, the ones that are born with silver spoons in their mouth. And, uh, you know, it's just, it, it's just a different way of being. Uh, and, 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 you know, exactly. And, and the listeners know exactly what I'm talking about. So uh, struggling was not a bad thing looking back on it for me. Mm-hmm. At what point um, did money stop being an issue? Uh that's a good question. I think it's always an issue. Yeah, I think we all worry about the day we're go broke and we we're too and we we become a burden on our kids. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, you know, it's a, it's a valid question. Um, you know, we got our share, and I asked all the time, "Do you wish you'd have been, you know, playing today?" No, no, no. I like where I played. I I got to compete against Jack and and a little bit of Arnie and that generation, and Johnny and Weisskopf and and all those guys. And I got to compete against you know, Tiger and his generation a little bit. So I I liked where I was. Uh, uh, We got our share of the money. And I don't know, I just, uh, you know, after you win a major championship, winning my first U.S. Open didn't change me too much, John, because I was already successful. Mm -hmm. But somewhere in that time, it became more about playing and, you know, just about, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, you always thinking about it, but it's not as big an issue as it was when you were starting out. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at your record here. I, I hadn't picked up on this before, and goodness knows we've talked often enough, but um, you, you won three times in Australia. 
this is a Golf Australia production, this uh, this podcast. So I wasn't aware that you'd been down there that often and been that successful. I mean, talk to me a little bit about playing in Australia. You're obviously, you had the knack for it. I liked it down there. Uh, the golf was very similar to where I was coming from. I love the people. Who, who doesn't like it down there? Yeah. My gosh. Uh, mm. I went down there. Part of my get out of debt tournament was um, I uh, – I wasn't on tour yet, and I went down there in the fall of 76, uh, and I finished second to Jack Nicklaus in the Australian Open mm-hmm. and won $22,000, and that tournament got me out of debt that I had taken for that $10,000. So now Sarah and I were free and clear. Um, and I'll never forget, I, I was so – I hit a driver one iron to the last hole that tournament on Sunday late afternoon to make par to beat to finish second by myself. And I was so happy for that because first of all, I'd hit a driver one iron when it really mattered. Uh, Jack won by three. Um, and I beat, I beat the Englishman who won, who shot the great round in the open championship uh, earlier that year, the year before, I don't remember his name. What year was that? Oh, that was like 75. No, he had a great round at the Masters, 74 5. Oh, Morris Bembridge. Yes, yes. Beat him by a shot for right second. Yeah. And I'm sorry, Morris, I didn't remember, but it's been a while <laughs> since then. Yeah, he's 64. Was, at Augusta was outrageous. Yes, exactly. So, uh, anyway, I, it got me out of debt. And so I read the next paper, the next morning in the paper, Jack Nicholas's quote has said it was his easiest wind ever. <laughs> And it was so deflating. Yeah. <laughs> I only beat this young kid. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he didn't even know my name. <laughs> but was... we had a great trip. And and I went down there. You know, I went down there every year for 10 or 12 years, and I was playing well. And, yeah, okay, you go. You get appearance, money, all that stuff. But I enjoyed going as well as Japan because it was uh, it was golf crazy. I played well there, and uh, I enjoyed it very much. Can, I mean, this is your business, but I'll ask you anyway. Uh, what were the appearance fees like back then? Uh, when I was playing well and I was going down at the end of the 80s, um, 50000 maybe. And I only tell you because people are wondering yeah. versus what they get now. I know, yeah. You know, they're getting seven figures, some of them, you know, high six figures. Are we getting 50000 or something? 30,000, yeah. something like that. and But I was the U.S. Open champion, so it was kind of yeah, – yeah. it was top dollar. And Greg Norton was going back there for a whole lot more um, and beating up on all, you know, their tour. But uh, it was uh, – it was hey, it's, it's the business side of golf that's part of it that everybody doesn't want to say anything about. But it's, hey, it's business. You go down there and you, you enjoy yourself. You try hard. And I, I will say this, that – there are some that probably didn't try very hard when they got this appearance fee, and yeah. some of them missed cuts. Uh, I missed one cut in my life with an appearance fee, and uh, I, I I always worked, went at it very hard because I felt like a responsibility to to play my very best and give my best because I was getting paid. Yeah, I mean, I've talked to a number of times to Marco Mira, you, your direct contemporaries, and he was the same. I mean, he he was very successful everywhere. I mean, he's he's got wins on his resume all over the world and he was very proud of the, that he's been paid to go yeah. but he, he you know he performed he, he, they got their money's worth in other words 
there were some organizers that would give you, say, say they'd offer you 50000 and if you miss a cut, you get twenty five. Hmm. I was I was good with that right. because, honestly, you weren't worth anything to them uh, after the cut if you missed it. So it was – the agents never liked that, trust me. Yeah. But uh, I was always good with that because I figured I was going to go over there and play well. I wanted to talk to you. You, you mentioned briefly that the, obviously the U.S. Open, um, which you won twice, and it's probably the you know what you're best known for, uh, two in a row. Um, you and I have talked again many times about the the way the U.S. Open has evolved from what it was in your time, um, which I'm not a huge fan of uh, the course setup, as you know, um, to what they've done over the last few years, which is a bit of everything really, and they they seem to be reverting back to to what they were before, um, or, or head in that direction at least. Um, what, what's your feeling on that, on US Open course setups, and what it was like back in your day compared with what it's been the last maybe decade? You know exactly what I feel. I know. Well, I'm teeing you up here. Come on. <laughs> See, you're teeing me up with this <laughs> softball. Am I supposed to hit this one in the park? Yes. Um, I almost gave you, you know, a cuddle there in the way into that. <laughs> <laughs> it was – it was uh, – uh, it wasn't better in my day, but this is the way it was in my day. And back before my day, it was even tougher. Mm. Uh, greens weren't quite as hard and fast, especially agronomy. You couldn't do that, but there was plenty of rough and rough was, whereas if you drove it in the rough, you didn't get it to the green. You hacked it out short of the green somewhere. And, and it wasn't terrible. Every time you rough is rough. Sometimes you get lucky. Sometimes you get unlucky, but if you got lucky, Therefore, you had to go for the green, and you didn't know where the bus so it was all tough. And then we came into this um, after me, and I think it started around when um, somewhere around the same time that uh, Rory won at Congressional. Mm. Congressional was not very deep rough at all, and they blamed it on the hot weather. But come on, everybody's got an excuse about everything. Yeah. Um, it was, uh, they wanted to, went into the graduated rough of, say, six or eight steps of semi-rough, and then whatever they call it, and then deep rough way out there. So basically what I contend is that Rory and his colleagues are so much better and stronger and more gifted than we are, the rough should be higher. Hmm. Yeah, but I'm not, I'm not having that argument. I, I don't think they are. I think that the, the equipment they use is just better. I don't. Well, I, I'm not having well, the new generation. Well, that's very nice to say. You know. but uh, the the equipment allows them to swing yeah. as hard as they do now, and and so so on and so forth. But anyway, they don't have enough rough. They do not play enough rough in the U.S. Open. Uh, the, the argument is they want to have it scurrying around the green where they can't control it. These guys are good. They can control their ball and get it around the green, and then all these runoffs. These guys can pitch it and put it in the greens as well as anybody in the world. They're the best in the world. Have some rough. And I don't ever like, don't tell me that it's luck to play at a rough like this around the greens. There's talent there to look at the ball, to judge the lie, to judge the swing, to trust the way the ball's going to come out. There's nothing but talent to play at a rough like that. Certainly there's a little bit of luck in anything you do in this game. But I think the rough should be deep around the greens. I'm not a fan of this runoff at all. Look what happened at Aaron Hills. It was like a PGA Tour event. Um, I, I just, I just wish it would go back to where it was a hard, the hardest, toughest test of, of the year. 
Well, you've heard me say this before, and I'm going to say it again. Um, the counter argument, uh, the, what I don't like about the what you're talking about, the narrow fairways, thick, rough, hard greens, is that if you miss the fairway, you chop it out to, you get a year level, you guys chop it out to 90 yards, and you make a four or a five every single time. Plus, the, the, it eliminates the exciting recovery shot, the risky shot from the rough. It also means it eliminates the the range of numbers that you get. You're either getting four or five, or I say, as I say, or you, if you give somebody at your level a, a temptation that they maybe shouldn't take, and they go for it, suddenly seven and eight comes into into play. What's your counter to that argument? See, you know, it's it's always debatable, and that's the way they have gone. It's like to chase it up the green, the way they set up Pinehurst, chase it around those perched up greens. But it's just the, it's just the fact that they can get it around the green. Their short games are so good, mm-hmm. uh, and their short games are better than ours because of the of the clubs. Yeah, maybe not the talent level, but the clubs have allowed them 60, 62, 64 degree wedges, and enables them to do things you and I couldn't do. Yeah. Uh, but I I contend that even if you had deep rough, you don't get horrific lies every time. So that time you do get that lie. It entices you to go, and therefore you might not be able to. You know, we saw it time and time again at Carnoustie, uh, Vandeveld's Carnoustie, yeah. uh, when the rough was so, so bad, probably the worst rough I've ever seen in my life, and nar- narrowest fairways of all time. In fact, didn't the RNA take more control set up after, after that year? That was the last time you the greenkeeper was involved. Yeah. I read something interesting from a friend of mine just the other day, John, that the USGA used to do the same thing. And it was in 47 or 48 is when the courses started to, the USGA started to take over because they were so differently set up every year and they wanted some continuity on golf course setup, which was tougher. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but as I say, I'm, I'm, I, I get, I get a bit bored watching guys grinding. Well, it, you know, you know there, there's the argument for that, but there's also the argument that, uh, and I talked to you know Arnold Palmer about this forever. He was a huge advocate of being the toughest test of the year. You should be exhausted Monday morning, mm-hmm. and part of that is growing rough. See, the priority to me, number one priority on any golf course is a uh, drive, put it in the fairway because it sets up the rest of the hole, uh, and the priority is not there anymore because the rough is not deep enough. You've got to be able to hit whatever you can hit off the tee to put it in the fairway, and that's not a number one priority anymore. Yeah, I, I do get the, the the argument that the the four majors ideally should have four very different identities, and the USGA and has, maybe, has maybe lost that in the last decade or so. The US, you know, that's and that's part of the argument is that they have lost their identity, and they did, and uh, I think they're going to go. I think they're going back uh, to somewhat the way it used to be, but they still want the players to play, mm-hmm. you know, more uh, for your argument. But, uh, you know, Mike Davis, who set him up all these years, is retiring. So John Bodenheimer's taking over, which nobody cares. But uh, it's going to be uh, – I think it's going to be a little more of a consistent, uh, tougher test off the tee. Yeah. So my next question, what – made you so good at that form of golf then what were what were the strengths of your game that played into that kind of golf i i don't know i i 
I enjoy the US Open to start with. Yeah. You were you US were just Open, as mean. You were just as mean as the US Open. Maybe that's part of it. Well, you know what? It, it, <laughs> and don't think I was going to say some of that. My mentality to accept it yeah. uh, was part of it. And some of that acceptance is that I played decent enough in the US Open early on to appreciate what they were trying to do to everybody. It did eliminate a lot of people on the first tee because they felt they felt like they were defeated already. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. A lot of it is from experience that I played reasonably well early on in the U.S. Open. So I embraced it. Um, I drove it well. Uh, I ironed it well. Um, I was a good bunker player. And I, as long as I made some putts, I could, I could survive it. But I, all, I never gave up on a hole. And, and that's the part of the beauty of the U.S. Open, which you don't like, is that you hit it, drive it in the rough. You, had to, you have to mash it out 60 or 70 yards short of the green. And there we're going to see who has the guts to make par more often. Mm-hmm. Okay. Don't give up. Don't give up on me. You just yet yeah, par because I can still make par. And when you don't give up, it's amazing. Amazing. How many times you can salvage par when you have to. Yeah. Versus well, what, a regulatory event or European tour event. Well, one of those, you, just what you described. I mean, uh, I actually watched you do this when you got to, uh, the four at the last hole at the country club out of the front bunker. Mm. I mean, that's a perfect example of that. I mean, the, the bunker shot that you touched on this earlier, I mean, the bunker shot for a player at your level, it wasn't that difficult, but the situation no. was incredibly difficult. Talk, talk me through that a little bit. Well, you said it right. You said it exactly. The terms that I've always used, John, is that the bunker shot itself was fairly simple. Um, the, the situation made it uh, the most important shot I ever hit in my life. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the best shot I ever hit in my life, but it was the most important shot because therefore it got me in the playoff against Nick. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, it's just I had I, I drove it with a three wood off the tee. I put it in the short rough on the left, which was mistake number one. But it looked like it could fly back in the day when we actually hit yeah. flyers. And so over the green was dead. If I hit it over the green, I couldn't make par. If you remember the slope of the green. Yeah. So I said, I take seven iron out and hopefully it flies. If it doesn't fly, I'm in the front bunker where I can make four from. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened. If it flew, the ball, the seven iron would still stay on the ground. So that's exactly what happened. It's a, it's a, it's a terrible position to be in on the last hole when you're, uh, uh, when you're tied. But, you know, that's, the, that's the, the hand I was dealt. So when I hit it in the bunker, I was just hoping like hell it didn't bury yeah. And when it didn't, you know, it was, it was, it was okay, but I still had to execute the shot. Yeah, I, I must admit, I lament the uh, demise, if you like, of the flyer. We don't see enough of the flyer anymore because Ooh. it was actually a useful shot now and again, especially where, where yes. I grew up. I mean, the, the course I grew up on, there was a lot of long par fours that played into the prevailing wind. And a lot of times I, would, I was actually trying to drive into the semi so that I could get a jump on the second shot and run the ball onto the green. I mean, so you could use it. <laughs> it, it was that you were actually trying to miss the fairway completely. Yeah. See, and therefore it lies your admittance of why you never progressed any farther, trying to drive <laughs> it in the rough. Well, there's something to I, I can't argue with that, yeah. <laughs> you know, but you're right. I mean, how about that you drive in the rough and you had that tree in front of you, and if you could make it fly, you could get it over the tree yeah. into the green. Yeah. And you can actually – you know, you can actually make it fly. You weren't sure, but you could scoop enough grass behind the ball to when the ball would come out, you know, knuckling and, and cut through the wind. So, yeah, we then after about 1987 or 8, we never hit another flyer. 
Very few of them anyway. Which of your two US Open wins do you look back on most fondly, or is it a tie? Uh, The first one. Uh, For a lot of reasons. One is that uh, it was my first, most importantly. Uh, Second, it was at the Country Club, which never disappoints. It was a wonderful place. Such history there, as Oak Hill has. Um, It was in a playoff, which was special. It was against the reigning Open champion. Uh, A lot of those things um, came together to make it. uh, But more importantly, it was just the first one. It meant so much. Uh, You're never quite sure if you can... Uh, if you'll ever do it, um, you you, you kind of know that you have the ability because of your tour record. But, you know, you got to be you got to be during four. And we put I don't know if we put too much pressure on four weeks a year or the right amount or whatever. But you have to be right one week out of four or four weeks out of four. But during those four weeks to win a major, you got to be hitting on all cylinders. And then you got to be a little lucky. Right place at the right time. And uh, you always have to hit a shot or make a putt come down the stretch. And uh, so there's a lot of, a lot of different things that have to happen to win. And um, uh, it was, um, uh, it was, it was a great week. It was a great week. Yeah. Plus it must've been nice to kick Nick Faldo's ass. Come on, let's be honest. <laughs> I knew that. Why do I know you so well? That was funny. I, you know what? It didn't make any difference. It didn't make any difference to me. Well, it does. I mean, you want to beat a top player. Yeah. Obviously it, it, it makes it even more special. Um, I got a couple of phone calls at night, Sunday night on telling me, don't be, don't be depressed or not excited enough. If you show up Monday and there's not that many people out there watching, hmm. it's a work day. Yeah. You know, so I was all ready for that. You know, one round for your life, the, the U S open and showed up there that day, 20 or 25,000 people out there. And I said, wow. Yeah. Time to get it done. Yeah, it was cool. I remember. Yeah. yeah. Here, now, I've got a trivia question for you. I'll be interested to see if you know the answer to this. Um, three guys tied for runner-up in your second win. Can you tell me who the three were? Uh, really don't care. <laughs> so you don't. <laughs> it, means, it means nothing to me. Uh-huh. You know, it was Mark. It was uh, Ian Woosnam. Yes. It was uh, Mark McCumber. Yep. And uh, Chip Beck, maybe? Correct. Yes, I'm, very, I'm impressed. Yeah. Well, and I only know because I, I, Mark McCumber used to, you know, in, in a good natured way, every time he saw me for 10 or 12 years after that, he'd always say, you know what, you know, one shot, I, you would not have been U.S. Open champion. And it kind of started to annoy me a little bit. I finally said to him in front of people to his face one time, I said, Mark, for Christ's sake, you lost. Get over it. <laughs> okay? Yeah. I heard enough of your crap. You know, yeah. one of those things. Yeah. But it was, uh, you know, the guy that I was I was concerned about coming down the end of that, that Sunday afternoon was Jumbo Ozaki. And, it, and it's pertinent right now because of, uh, uh, you know, the Masters win two weeks ago, last week. But Jumbo was so long and a good driver. Mm-hmm. And at one time on the backside, he was only one behind me. And I'm thinking, oh, God, he if he would happen to drive it in the fairway every hole coming in, he's going to make a birdie or two. Yeah. So um, he actually made a bogey or two because he didn't drive it well. But uh, he was the guy I was concerned with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I want to switch opens now um, and talk about your your sporadic play, if I'm going to put it that way, in, the, in our open over here. 
Um, again, you and I have talked about this before, and I've given you a lot of grief over. Um, tell me, tell me how you got on in the nineteen eighty five Open at Royal St George's. Well, <laughs> not very well. Um, <laughs> of all places, St George's was uh, one that um, the ball would bounce. Not exactly you were expecting it to bounce. Yeah. In most cases. Tom Weiskopf said it best to me <laughs> when we were doing the Open Championship for ESPN. It was like a giant ping pong machine. Yeah. yeah. Boom, 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 boom. And he's right. Yeah. And uh, my dear friend Bill Rogers won there, which, you know, uh, uh, certainly was a highlight of his life. But I don't know. I just – I didn't – I did embrace it for a long time, and and that's all on me. That's my mm. fault. I I honestly sit here – and if we have regrets in our life, that's one of mine, that uh, I got stubborn about yeah. the Open. Um, uh, it was um, – I didn't like – I'll tell you what I, what I didn't like. I didn't like that it was uh, not an official win yeah. and it wasn't official money. Yeah. Um, and, and, and was – did that – it just felt like if, if we, U.S. players – were to come over there should count because we, anyway, that was only my thought. And that was a stubborn selfish way to think about it. But when I didn't go over there, um, uh, you know, for a year when I should have uh, was a mistake on my part. And it's, it's, and I regret it, but I did learn, I did learn later on to, to embrace it. And I really thoroughly enjoyed it. My last four or five years over there. In fact, my brother came twice to carry for me and, and I had a couple of decent tournaments, whereas somewhere on the weekend, it could have gone the other way and I could have finished way up there. Yeah. But it never kind of kind of went my way or I didn't play well enough uh, somewhere on the weekend or mostly Saturday to uh, to really have a chance. But I was excited waking up once or twice on Saturday to go play. And uh, it was just it, it wasn't meant to be. But um, it was it was good weeks. I, I really did enjoy it. And then going back and doing. TV there for eight or 10 years at ESPN was, uh, was brought back a lot of memories, you know, you know, during my play. Yeah. Um, well, since you mentioned the, the broadcasting side of your, your life, um, post playing that there's two things I wanted to get into. And that was, I think I, I kind of know the answer, but you, you stopped playing competitively relatively early. I mean, you didn't play much seniors golf, I think people will wonder why, given how competitive you were, but maybe that's the reason why you stopped early. I don't know. You fill me in on that. I don't know, John. Um, when I when I didn't win the third open at Medina, the the air went out of my sails. Um, was it burnout? Was it um, psychological? Was it who knows what it was? And I and I played. Uh, you know, years after that, and I just didn't play as well as I would have liked. I was floundering a little bit, but mostly was because I wouldn't, you know, fired up to play like I used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, 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 I'm sorry to say, some people go through the whole lives like that, but it wasn't it wasn't me. Yeah. And so um, I played till I was 42 years old and took the TV gig for ABC as the analyst. And but I still played a lot after that. But when you go to the booth. And when you play tournaments, doing TV and trying to play, you're really no longer a player. Uh, yeah. 
Some people tried to warn me that. Arnold tried to warn me of that. I said, oh, I can do it. I can do it. You're really not a player anymore because your, your, your sights are not 100% on just playing yeah. and hitting shots and going to bed that night and waking up that morning. And you know what it's like. And so uh, uh, it started to go downhill then. And I played, you know, probably a lot until 46 or 7. Didn't play well. Had a couple of chances, but mm-hmm. uh, didn't play well. And uh, and still was semi-enjoying the game. And and then, you know, then I didn't play much my last two or three years of the regular tour. And I, then, you know, I, I said, you know, ABC and I kind of went our ways. I said, well, hell, I'll go play golf again. I was looking forward to that. And I didn't. I didn't play well. And. I guess part of that was never embracing it uh, as much as I could have. And then I got an opportunity to go back into TV when I was 50, 52 or three and, and, and jumped at that opportunity. But, uh, you know, I, I don't regret any of that. Um, it was, it was decisions that weren't made easily. Uh, there was a lot of thought and a lot of help from outside Sarah and my brother and, uh, you know, a little bit, my agent and, yeah. you know, um, people that I trusted. So uh, anyway, it was it was the way it is, and it you know what, it might have cut my golf a little short, but it certainly gave me something to do. I'm sitting here 66, still doing some TV. It gave me something to do at this age. It kept me right in the middle of the game, and part of the reason why I still think about it so much. So uh, in the in the long haul, it might have been a really good thing. Yeah, are you the kind of guy that that looks back? Uh, on your career and remembers the highlights more than the, 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 the losses. I mean, what, what, what sticks in your head the most and stop laughing. <laughs> you know, the losses still hurt. Yeah, yeah. Honestly. And anybody that's played this game, uh, at, at a certain level. And I don't mean our level. I'm just mean college golf, amateur golf. When you play to win and, or just play to do the best you can, uh, the losses you remember, because because what do you learn from? Where do you where do you grow from? Where do you? Uh, uh, it's, it's from the losses because they hurt, and I think that's when I started to go downhill is because the poor play and the losses didn't hurt like they did before. Mm. Exactly right. Yeah. And when you can go to bed at night and turn it off after shooting seventy three or four that day, then something's wrong. Something's wrong, and uh, so. I do remember, uh, I still feel too, I still too feel too self-centered or arrogant to go back to some of the, to the exciting times. I, I still go to the, um, to the, um, you know, the 85 masters or, yeah. you know, uh, uh, you know, maybe the 84 U S open. And certainly I go back to the 94 U S open, uh, uh, where, where Ernie won, but, uh, you know, thank goodness there's not a whole lot of them. You know, yeah. uh, there, there's enough of them to keep you up at night, but thank goodness there's not a whole lot of them. The, you mentioned the 85 Masters. I've got to ask you about that because uh, how long does, does that lingered with you or, or does it still? I mean, that, that was a, I mean that, that was hard to watch, Curtis. So it must have been even worse for you. Oh, you're so sweet. Thank yeah. you for saying well, that. Well, it was. I mean, Jesus. I mean <laughs> you know if, if you play golf, you know there, there is no joy, enjoyment in watching that, really, you know. It was, it was, trust me, it, when you're out there doing it, uh, when you're in the moment, and, and I hate that phrase, in the moment, when you're out there in, in the process doing it, and you're not used to playing like this, or you're not used to hitting, you expect a lot out of yourself. And when you, when you don't perform 
uh, you feel like you really, you really failed. You know, what am I going to do tomorrow? Yeah. And uh, it was, it was the masters. Uh, so, you know what? You get up the next morning, you get on an airplane. Uh, I went home for a week and you got you to gotta get on with it. After three days off, you start hitting a few balls, getting ready for the next week. And, I, and I, I've, I've said this story a lot is that the very next week was uh, that I played was the Tournament of Champions out in San Diego. And, and Jack took me aside and said uh, just a few words. He just said, you know, I know this is tough. Uh, you can go one or two ways. You can go the good way or the bad way. Yeah. I think you'll, you'll learn from this. But uh, just remember, it's, it's we've all done it. And it made a great deal, but he took the time to say that. I felt like I was going to be okay anyway, but he took the time to, for a young player, and that meant more than he would ever know. And uh, just that we've all been there. Yeah. And so, but, you know, the 85 Masters was, was interesting. I should have never been there to start with after shooting 80 the first round. And then I played very well. And then I had a four shot lead with nine holes to go. And, and, uh, and I didn't, I didn't play that poorly. I just hit it in the water twice and, uh, Bernhard Langer won. And, you know, congratulations to him and people don't give him in in my world, the credit that he deserves. He shot 32 on the backside, uh, when he was behind, that's, it's extraordinary. But, uh, they still felt like it was mine to lose, win or lose, and I lost. So, and sometimes when you lose, you got to give yourself some credit because you didn't do anything to really lose. Somebody beat you. That's easier to take. But when you lose and you lost it, uh, it's harder to take. I know you talk to your brother every day. What did your brother say to you in the wake of that? You know, probably not much. He knew better. Yeah. Um, there's what do you say? Yeah. Uh, there was not anything to say. Um, everybody treated it as. As Watson said when he went to the press room after when he was 59 years old, nobody died here. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we will we will come back. We will play golf again. You know what? I didn't think so, but the sun came up the next day. Yeah. I didn't think it would ever come up again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, there's just not enough. You just don't say anything. You really don't. You just kind of move on. And, you know, you, I think about it. But, how, you know, the best thing I could ever do is get back into the arena, is go play golf again. Uh, I didn't play the very next week because I, I, I planned on taking off. But the best thing I can do is go get on that golf course and get back in contention. Uh, and, and I did just that. And I believe it was 85. I was playing with Jack in the last round of Cana- Cana- Canadian Open yeah. and beat him. So uh, that was huge to win later that year against top players. Huge for me. Yeah. Um, I want to switch now to the to the Ryder Cup, which again has been a big part of your career. Um, I have to say, your your timing, your generation's timing wasn't the greatest for, for Americans. Looking at it from an American point of view, you came along just about the time that the Europeans suddenly decided to become competitive in the damn thing, because it was a bit of a walkover uh, before you know, certainly before '83, um, your first one. Um, you've been you've seen a bit of everything in the Ryder Cup, um, just as in your tournament career, probably. Talk me through the, the good the good side of the Ryder Cup and the bad side. Well, I'm going to tell you what I tell everybody else. And every – it could be a clinic. It could be saying a few words after dinner. It could be a conversation over beers. 
everybody says, what changed the Ryder Cup? And I'll give you five reasons. Seve, Nick, <laughs> Sandy, Ian, and Bernhard. Yeah. That changed the Ryder Cup. Yeah. Nobody else. Well, and I would, I would, and I, and I, and I, and I think right now, Tony Jackman as well. Yeah. Cause he could handle those five guys. He could handle Seve. Yeah. But anyway, uh, it's, it's the way it is. And that's the timing of it. And uh, we didn't play well enough. Uh, they were, immensely motivated uh because of Sebi. Yeah. I think Sebi Sebi's love for the Rada Cup and the Rada Cup's ability to prove that we can play on a national scale. Uh and I don't mean any of this in a negative way, but I think I sense this all along is that this is the time for them to prove to beat the big bad USA. Yeah. And this is our chance to do it. If you win the trophy Lancome and you beat a couple American players that was not on the national stage like this is international stage, I should say. And uh, so, uh, and I think our system with no, no excuses whatsoever, our system didn't quite pick the best players of, of that year and a half either. Yeah. Um, and I think I can justify that, but anyway, they beat us. Uh, my first was 83. We won. And that was when they were on the scene, but we won by a half a point or a point. Point, yeah. And then game on after that. Yeah. 85, we, they beat us at the Belfry. Um, 87, we went back to Jack's hometown in, in Columbus Island Memorial. They beat us there. Um, uh, it, was, it just went on and on. So, and we won. But, you know, quite frankly, I, I, it was just more motivation. Maybe who knows why? Yeah. I mean, on paper, honestly, when you put it on paper and you see, you know, the wins and the and the PGA Tour European majors, it it's not supposed to be close. No, no, it's not. No, but it is. So why do you think that is? Right here, right there. Well, plus it's eighteen holes match play as well, which is you know yes, at yes. your level, you know, anybody can be anybody really. So. But when you do it all the time, it's more than just well, that's true. luck of the draw and 18 holes in match play. So um, I had, it was great. You know, I'm, I say all the time that the Ryder Cup is some of the greatest times of my life, win, lose, or draw, which mm-hmm. we did in 89. Yeah. Uh, team, team golf is something I really, really enjoyed. I love college golf and Ryder Cup golf I love. Uh, it's, a, it's a chance to get to know and, and behind the scenes players that you play against every day that you really don't know very well. And then to, um, uh, uh, certainly winning is more fun, but it was, it was always a great week and to get to know the other side as well. I've created friendships still to this day, mm. uh, because of when I played in the European tour a little bit early on, because when I played against Ryder cup or, uh, or, uh, Dunhill cup teams or whatever it might've been over there. Um, it was a uh, great friendships. Everybody's intrigued by Seve. Uh, I'm no different. Uh, you played against him a number of times. Um, what, what was that like? And is there any moments that stick with you? You know, good, bad, indifferent, funny. What, I'm sure there are a few. Good, bad, or I, indifferent. I mean, he was a force of nature in match play. You know, sitting here at my age, looking back on on that, and it, it could be a stroke play event. Uh, you had your hands full. Mm-hmm. 
in every way you can imagine. Yes, I, yes, uh, I can imagine. Yes, and so uh, uh, I think the what I admire the most about Sebi is that in match play in the Ryder Cup, you knew you had your hands full. Uh, I love match play because gamesmanship is part of it. Mm-hmm. how you can get under somebody's skin in a gentlemanly way, in a nicer way. Yeah. But uh, he he could do that, and what aggravated me so much is that I knew it was coming, but I allowed him to get under my skin when I knew it was coming. That was my, that was on me. I should have blown him off and just said, you know, you do your thing. I do my thing, but it bothered me enough to where it affected me. Did it affect me that he beat me? No, but it bothered me. So I, he thrived, thrived on that. Mm -hmm. And I admire the hell out of him that it could play well and thrive on it and, and be a part of, of, of that, uh, if he won, but, um, he was, he was, I've never seen somebody chip and pitch the ball so much, so better. So, so well in my life. Now I will say this. I think Tom Watson and Stevie were two of the best. And I think Jordan Spieth Mm. is added to that, that small, small group right now. I think Jordan Spieth chips in, pitches in, as much or more than the, than the two of those did. Uh, it's one thing to be a good short game player. It's one thing to be a good pitcher or chipper of the ball. It's the other thing to make shots. We used to say all the time about Tom Watson, I was just lucky. No, when you do it every day, it's more than luck. Yeah. yeah. That'd be the same thing. It's more than luck. You know, I we, mean, they're aiming at the hole. Well, Tiger, if Tiger's going to, to, to Tiger went to Seve for advice on the short game, I mean, that tells you something. I mean, Tiger wasn't asking advice from many people. On yeah. any area of the game. You know, Sebi's hands just fit on the club so well, and even with a drive or a two iron. But when he went to pitch it, he had big hands, but they were so soft, weren't they? Mm. And he had this he had this cock and hold off, you know, type of uh, technique. And then on the other hand, he could release a club head out of the bunker so well and get it up and down so quickly. So he had all these hand shots, and you don't teach that. You're born with it. Yeah. You're born with this innate ability to – to have this imagination to hit this shot that nobody else sees, that nobody else sees. And that's part of his genius. Um, gosh, I was, I was on the other side of it many times, but I'll tell you one of the best shots that I've ever seen in golf is that the year he won the, the open championship, but he missed the green. What course was he missed the green left on the last hole? Uh, about six steps. Yeah, the chip. And yeah. he had to pitch it on the green yeah. over this little bottom with a nine iron and run it 40 or 50 feet to the hole yeah. last hole, last shot. He's, I think he's got a one shot lead and the ball mm. lift out. Yeah. It's, it's the most people have no idea what goes through your system and your mind and your, and your touch feel when you have to hit a shot like that, which is nothing but feel. Mm. And he pulled it off like a genius. I, I just, I'll always remember that shot because it yeah. was beautiful to watch. It was, it was beautiful as the word. It was a beautiful thing. And, and I keep thinking the ball's going to go in every time I see it. You know, so. it, it exactly, exactly. But anyway, moving on, Seve was, was great. And, and all, the, all the rest of them were, were great players. I mean, it's not, it was not Ryder Cup stuff, but they've proven themselves by winning majors. And mm-hmm. every one of them won majors. And at, at one time, probably number one in the world. I don't know that for a fact, but... It was a nucleus to build around that was uh, better than anything we could put together. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the whole team was built around that. I mean, Jacqueline, the downside for Jacqueline back then was he had to ride those guys to death. I mean, they all had to play five times. So that that you know, the bottom half of the team at that point wasn't. Um, although I, I do think that the likes of Mark James, Howard Clark, Sam Torrance, Ken Brown, those guys they were a bit underrated. I mean, they weren't as good as the the guys you just mentioned, but they were pretty pretty good players as well. Well, you say they were underrated. I don't know if I really agree with that. They were undergraded may, maybe on a international scene because they didn't play that much hmm. overseas until maybe later on. But, you know, every one of those guys performed when it counted over there. Yeah. And that's all I need to know. Yeah. Sam made the putt on the last hole of Belfry one year. You know, uh, Mark James was, was the kind of guy you desperately didn't want to play in mass play. Hmm. You know why? Because he, he had a lot of heart and guts. Uh, all of those guys uh, – Plus they, just, they did the world of them. They didn't really get to play in the American majors back then. It was very difficult for a European golfer to, to get into the three in America. Even when Seve, I always use this as an example, uh, the 1980 Masters that Seve won, he, he was playing in that Masters because he finished in the top one in the Open the year before. The guy who was running yeah, up in that right. Open didn't get to play in the Masters in 1980. So. No, you're right. It was all about access, and it was very restrictive back then. Um Thank goodness that changed because it's made golf better. World golf, the whole yeah, oh, absolutely, yeah. That was yeah. that was the great um, disappointment for us. I mean, we the, Seve, there was faults on both sides, but Seve and the PGA Tour that they didn't get on was a great loss to golf in general. Whoever's fault it was, and there's probably faults on both sides. I'm sure. So it was no, no, we we our leader was a bit stubborn, and we all know how stubborn Seve could get. So yeah, uh, yeah. it was uh, – but it was – you know, somebody had to pave the way, and he certainly was that guy mm-hmm. uh, by by playing it out in the press, by doing what he thought was right. And sometimes that wouldn't look on uh, in a positive, but it was – somebody had to be the first guy, and yeah. he was it. Yeah. Um, before we leave the Ryder Cup, I want to ask you about your captaincy. Um, what sort of an experience was that? Um I know that, the, I mean, I've read this more than once now. I've talked to you about it. Is, uh, is Tom Lehman talking to you yet? No. No. It's still the same, is it? No, yeah, yeah. Um, that's all I'll go. That's all I'll go. You know, the greatest week other than winning a golf tournament of my, of Sarah and my life. Hmm. Uh, the lead up, just to remind everybody, we were, we were delayed a year because of 9-11. So I had two and a half years to prepare and, uh, I enjoyed every part of it from picking out to do this, to designing golf bags, uh, quick story. So we designing, I told Burton, which was the golf bag company. I said, basically, I want you to design me an American flag, not the American flag, but the most patriotic hmm. bag you can envision. And they had their four artists back there, draw up on these big boards, what they depicted that to be. So one night, my brother and my wife and I, we had had way too much to drink and we had put together the one we thought the best and we were pasting yeah. to put it kind of make it perfect. And it turned out perfect. It's amazing what alcohol can do to the imagination. It's, it's a wonderful so, thing. <laughs> so they made, so that kind of stuff was great. And, you know, it just, but the week itself, the guys listened. the guys wanted the parameters of what to do and what not to do. They were all part of this team they, it was, it was, it was an eye opener for me that the dinners, the mornings were great fun. Uh, everything about it, everything about it, it you know, 
they were terrific. Um, I can't say enough of it. And, and I would not tell you that if it was not that, but the only, the only downside is we didn't win on Sunday. I'm not sure I I fully subscribe to this team spirit thing. Um, in the sense that I know when doing the job that I do, I I get to get glimpses behind the scenes a bit. I mean, the, the Europeans do a hell of a job of portraying themselves as this United force and front and all the rest of it. But there's plenty going on in their team room that, that uh, you know, w- would be described as negative. Perhaps. Hey, they had 12 personalities too. Exactly. You know what exactly. I like to say, John? I had 12 individuals, but I had 14 personalities. And that's as far as I don't go. <laughs> you know, it, but you're right. You know, I, you have to try to, me as a captain, my job is not to try to mesh these 12 personalities to all come together for one common goal. That's such bullshit. Yeah, I all told him, and I agree with you. I told him I get animated about this stuff because I gave two and a half years. I'm thinking about it. I want you to play as an individual. I want you to go out there with your partner, David Flood, tomorrow, Tiger Woods and Davis Love. I want you two to play the best you can play as an individual. Hmm. And therefore, the team will do well. Yeah. Don't try to get into your partner's head and don't try to tell him what the hell to do. I don't they don't want to know. That's that was that was the part of Seve's captaincy that said drive the guys crazy. But no, you're exactly right. My my job was to make them comfortable, you know, give them a chance to play well. And what does that mean? They're 12 individuals with great games. Um, give them some good dinners and tell them go make me look good, boys. I mean, what else do you do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, make sure they have a chocolate bar on the backside on the 15th <laughs> tee every day. That wasn't me. No. You know, if you need to wipe your nose, there's your towel. You know, that kind of stuff. That's, and I think they appreciated that out of me. Uh, I just, I don't, I completely agree with you on this team atmosphere, but I will say this. They all do get along well. They all, and they all had a good time. Yeah. I mean, as I say, I think it's a bit overrated, but, and I think the format as well um, definitely helps if you can put it that way, the the team that on paper isn't as good as the other team, I think the format evens it up a bit for sure. Well, the match play does that. Yeah, no, exactly right. You can get you can get motivated, excited for eighteen holes, which over seventy two holes, your weaknesses are going to show mm-hmm. in stroke play. Yeah, but and the, and the great thing about the Ryder Cup is it's become the the greatest show in golf. Really, I mean, yeah, there is nothing better than a Ryder Cup that is close and with the singles underway i mean my i do worry a little bit actually in passing that that hasn't happened for a while it hasn't happened since medina and that the way the, the courses are being set up is, is almost too much in favor of the home team and that we're not getting close matches you know the last two or three have been fairly comfortable victories for the home team and that's a dangerous road to go down you kind of lose it it loses its thrilling aspect if you like you know, I don't know if I agree with that because they're all world-class players. There's 24 of the best players in the world. I don't care what golf course they're playing or how it's set up. I think they're all playing the same golf course. I will say this, though. Going over to Europe and playing, always playing a course in which they play the tour on is a, is a definite advantage that they know the course. We go to courses that we don't know at all. Mm-hmm. And so does that really affect you? Maybe just a smidge. Well, I think I, my mind goes back to, to France. I mean, I, I said this before, and, and it made me laugh at the time. I was out watching uh, on the course, and I glanced across, and there standing in a row was uh, Jim Furyk, Steve Stricker, Matt Kutcher, and Zach Johnson. 
all mm-hmm. of whom were captains or vice captains. And I'm thinking to myself, on this golf course, those four should all be playing. They would have done a far better job on that golf course, the way it was presented, than, than certainly Phil Mickelson, who was wholly unsuited to it. I mean, he was spraying it yeah. all over the world. So in that respect, I do think that, you know, the, the course set up, it does have a, a role to play. Because it certainly, yeah, did, yeah, it, it certainly did in France. Yeah, I just... Uh certain courses will benefit certain players, but I still go back to these are 24 world-class players. I don't care if you play the St. Andrews or Oakmont or whatever, they can just, they can, you know, everybody's playing the same golf course. Yeah. And there's always somebody playing poorly. You never get the the whole team playing great. Unfortunately, there's always one. Well, that's, that's the nature of the, uh, unless you pick the week before, the 24 players, you're going to get somebody not playing at the top of the game, but that's the beauty of it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the pairings from the captains, the uh, uh, motivating yourself to go do something that you haven't been doing very well for the last couple of months, all the above. I, I still think it's the greatest event in golf. It's not a championship. It's, it's certainly a whole hell of a lot more than an exhibition, but it's an event and it's a happening and uh, it, it gets the world's attention uh, for one week every, you know, two years. Yeah. Before we leave the Ryder Cup, one last question. Um, does the 1995 one keep you awake at night still? You know, yeah, a little bit. Um, just because, you know, when you're a pick, I think you have a little bit more pressure yeah. to justify your existence. And I didn't, I didn't play that poorly that week. I, I just... As you know, in partnerships, you can you can lose. That I just didn't play well a week, but then I got motivated in the singles to play Nick. We were having a really good match, and it looked like I was going to win. And then I then I kind of you know, there's a lot of phrases I could use that aren't good for this this little uh, video. So uh, I didn't play well coming down the stretch, and he won and. And I felt like I let a lot of people down. You know, in this golf game, when I when we talked about the Masters a few minutes ago, mm-hmm. there was one person that felt bad, and that was me, um, that I let myself down. In this case, I let down 11 other members, a captain who, who picked me. Uh, you know, it's just, you can go on and on and on. Yeah, but I, I, I really did something, and I really did something that was uncharacteristic uh, and I, I really felt bad about it. But I, I always look beyond the the results of the matches, Curtis, and, and look at the numbers on you know the, the what people how people actually played. I mean, I mm-hmm. had occasion to talk to um, Peter Townsend, who played in the nineteen seventy one Ryder Cup a while ago, and he played. He said he played great in every match and lost every one, but he was playing against Arnold Palmer or Jack Nicklaus or both in five of the six matches. You know, and he but he just got beat. And and you mentioned Sam Torrance hole in the putt in 1985. Well, I've looked at the numbers, and it was a great moment, iconic moment for Sam, and wonderful, and all the rest of it. Sam was round in 79 that day. There you go, and won his match, and he's a hero. Yeah, there you go. So, but his golf was it's nothing to write home. I mean, Nick and I actually, if I remember correctly, played. You never know what he's going to say, yeah. but I think we played, if I remember right, you know, pretty well. It was a it was a pretty good match. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, you know what? I, I don't know. It's just it's one of those times you wish you had back. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm going to finish off. Um, last question is um, the modern game compared with uh, 
the game as it was when you were at your peak. I mean, I, I'm old, old fuddy-duddy enough to... I subscribe to this theory, put it this way, that way back in the day, the equipment, when they started out, wasn't nearly good enough to take on the golf courses. That's why the scoring was so high way back. Then it got to the point where the equipment caught up and it was a fair fight for a long time, maybe 50 years, when you were part of that. Now, my contention is that the equipment is so good that at your level um, that the courses have to be manipulated to try and keep up and the game is diminished by that. How do you feel about that argument? And I mean, I think that your era was far more fun to watch. It was more interesting. There was more shot making. And again, I know I'm heading down the old fuddy-duddy route here, but that's how I feel about it. I don't think the game at the top level now is as interesting as it was back in the day. You know, Whatever I say, it's going to sound like the old fuddy duddy. Yeah, I know. Well, I'm I, I I'm uh, the same. I, give, I, I accept that. You know, I and, and I never want to be that because I admire the hell of all these young players. Um, I, I will say this is that I think they're enormously talented. Okay, they are bigger and stronger. Are they better athletes? I take offense to that because some of us were pretty good athletes in our day as well. Are they bigger? Yes. And bigger is good now because it enables you to hit the ball farther. Uh, but uh, I, uh, Jack Nicholas was a hell of an athlete. Why was Jack Nicholas the best player of all time? Arguably. Yeah. I never have asked him that. And I've always wanted to, you know, Mike, it's not, he didn't swing the club better than anybody else. He didn't put the ball better than he was a better athlete. Mm -hmm. He could put the club on the back of the ball consistently because he had great hand-eye coordination. That's what it comes down to. And I think the equipment of today doesn't allow these young athletes to let their ability show. Yeah. I mean, my argument is not, it's not a knock on the the modern players. They're wonderful. They're fantastic. They're at least as talented as your generation, but, but the game is, is not as good. That's what my the players well, are as good, but the but the game isn't. I think that I'll put it like this: I made a living hitting four, five, and six times, mm-hmm. and you never see that hit today unless it's into a par five. Yeah, and I I hate to see um, Augusta National, which is on everybody's mind last week. I hate to see what they hit into par fives because. For instance, 13, and somebody hit seven iron in there on Saturday, one of the top players. And let's go back there and hit off that side hill, downhill lie, the four woods that I used to hit in there, yeah. or Seve, or Nick, yeah. the two irons of the four woods. Now we're going to see how good you can put that club on the back of the ball, mm-hmm. that type of stuff. Yeah. It's a whole lot easier with a seven iron. Mm-hmm. And some of these other holes, I mean, 15 and – Go back in there and try to hit a three-wood into 15 and stop it on that green. It's impossible. Yeah. Uh, you know, just shots like that. And that's a, not a knock on the young players. But I just think the equipment and the ball, and I'm old enough now. I'm, I'm a huge Titleist guy in that, you know, they've been the best ball forever and the clubs they make are fantastic. But all the clubs and balls are fantastic. But I'm, a, I'm getting to a point where enough's enough. Because I want to see these guys, they hit shots. You know why they hit shots? Drive us a damn crooked most of the time. They have to hit shots from 
from the trees. Yeah. I've never seen people hit it so far offline as I did last week at the Masters. Mm-hmm. And now they're chasing distance, which now they're hitting it farther offline. And I guess that's probably a li- Bryson DeChambeau is more fun to watch than some because he hits so bloody far offline. Yeah. But it's not good for the game. And li- they're not playing the game from point A to point B to point C the way the generations before them came. Yeah, I mean, you I guess the, I'm the, saying the same thing, trying to say it a little nicer, softer way. Yeah, I don't. Know. Yeah, you mentioned the 13th hole, Augusta. That's a, it's the perfect example. And Fred Ridley even brought that up a couple of years ago in his little press conference at, during the Masters. That you know, Jones's line on that second shot was that it was a momentous decision to go yes. for it or not. Now that decision is gone. There is no decision. Yeah, you know, they don't. Make, well, they, they put they, it up in the trees. They go from the pine straw. They go uh, from whatever and. The decision now, our, we didn't really have a decision off the tee because there was, used to be three pines up there. And if you went at the middle pine, that was a good tee shot because you would bounce a little left and now you're going to be able to go. If you went at the right pine, you were going to be too far, you lay it up. So now they, and we could never hit it far enough to get up in the pine straw. And now they do. So now the decision for them is how far across the trees they go, which to me is, if they hit a good tee shot, they're hitting a you know, short iron in there. So I don't know. I just – Augusta National is our best example. Excuse me, our best example strictly because it's virtually the same golf course that we played. There's some new tees. And, and you know, back. The greens are a bit faster now, are they not? Uh, they certainly were on Thursday, although they were fast some days in our day. Right. They were really out of, you know, somewhat out of control. Mm-hmm. But fr- Thursday this past week, they were um, – they had some some uh, some lightning speed to them, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, I, I do. But I that's do, I that's wonder. to the golf course now, though. Well, it is, but that's that's my argument on the manipulation front. I and mean, I do wonder when, you know, a world class chipper of the ball like Shane Lowry, who's top five in that category in the world, chips into a lake. I do think, you know, I think mm, is this really golf anymore? You know, I do wonder yeah. about that. You know, yeah, and 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 whole locations that are. Suspect like front right at fifteen, you things just, like that. But you, you know, never, you don't green, see whole location. Come on, no, I don't. Flagstick, <laughs> I try to say, I do. It's just, yeah, I, I, I agree. I don't know why we did morph into flagstick versus, you know, okay, pin is out. Flagstick is acceptable or whole, yeah. but whole location. Come on, how about the patron observation decks? Oh man, yeah. that rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? <laughs> But we digress. <laughs> yes, we do. Yes. Yeah. If I put, if I put but, you in charge, Curtis, what, what would you do about all this? You know, I, I don't know if you can do anything mm. because the cat is out of the bag, isn't it? I don't think in any in society in general, you can never take away what you've already let out of the bag. And I don't know. Um, you could in golf, but you're not doing it in tennis and the rackets, the balls. You know, I will say this baseball goes to and fro with the yeah. ball some. Mm-hmm. And I don't know about cricket or, you, you know, but I, I just, you could. But I mean, my argument is always that the, the, the golf is the only game where we've we've messed around with the venues to fit the equipment. Other sports have fixed the equipment to, to suit the venues. Baseball is one. The javelin mm-hmm. is another. Tennis, they've slowed the ball in tennis it's at Wimbledon because it was just getting ridiculous. Yeah, that, we've done, point. but golf's done the opposite, and I've never really understood why. I don't get it. That's a good point. I've never really thought of it like that. I don't know. I, you know, I, I tell you what, I am. I, I'm totally sick of the talk and the rhetoric 
Mm. Either either do something or get off the pot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my you know, my theory is I, I had the, the my previous guest on this podcast was Martin Slumbers from the RNA, and mm. I, I put this to him. I, I mean, my theory is that the RNA and the USGA are right now they've gone through this lengthy, incredibly lengthy procedure because ultimately they I think they realise that they're going to have to stand up in court and say and argue legitimately that they've tried everything to fix mm-hmm. this before it got to court because if they don't do that. They're going to get slaughtered in court. You know that'll be the well. You haven't done ever. You haven't explored every avenue. You haven't done. You know you haven't consulted with absolutely everybody. But they're mm-hmm. going to be able to stand up in court and say that they have. And that's my theory for why it's taken so long. You know. Well, I think where what what's going to happen is bifurcation is going to happen. Yeah. Um, you don't. The country clubber doesn't want to hit the ball any any less. Um, and we're only talking about. I don't know, 10,000 players in the world, 5,000 yeah. players in the world, the professionals. Um, the gray area does come on college golf, amateur go- top amateur golf. They want to play the same balls and equipment that we yeah. do hmm. and, and the mini tours, all of that around the world. So you, you're going to have to draw the line somewhere. And wherever you draw that line, you're going to have to roll back the ball or shrink the driver head. Hmm. The irons don't hit it any farther. No. The irons – are, are so good now. The irons are just jacked up. It's just a number on the bottom of the club yeah, now. That's right. Uh, so, you know, make the driver head in three. How some of these three woods go as far as the driver. Mm. You know, it's, it's the COG or CO, whatever it is, and, uh, coefficient of rest CORs. Restitution. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. you got to, you know, shrink that, shrink the, shrink the, shrink the sweet spot on the driver in the three wood and, and, and bring the ball back 5% or something, make the ball spin more, yeah. do something to make them yeah. back off. Now we don't want to see people hit two irons off every tee. No. So you bring back the ball five or 7%. Jack says 10%. That's ridiculous. When you start running the numbers, mm. um, but you're always going to have big hitters. We've always had big hitters well, in the game. They should always have an advantage. It's just my argument is that is that the the, the advantage is now out of stock with the you know it, it's just doesn't fit the game anymore. You know. Yeah, and and we don't have enough rough. We don't have enough penalties. So if you don't drive it in the fairway, mm-hmm. you know, I'm on ESPN last week at the Masters, and I came on TV one time and said, you know, I am going to sound like an old dinosaur now. And if I do, bear with me. You, the hole is set up by driving it in the fairway. Your angles to these greens, in particular Augusta National, are set up in the fairway. If you do miss the fairway, there's not a lot of rough, but your margin of error shrinks a great deal because of the firmness and speed of the green, yeah. much like a U.S. Open or Open Championship because of the tough hole locations. Yeah. So, therefore, let's put it in the fairway. But these guys don't don't no. buy into that. No, they it's don't all care. about distance. It's all about distance. Mm-hmm. And the numbers, the numbers by these by these really geeky guys are proving them correct. The closer you can get to the green, yeah. the better you can score. Yeah. I don't buy into that. I'd rather hit an eight iron in the middle of fairway than a pitching wedge from the heavy rough. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't know. That's well, but plus, that's the way they play. And yeah. let's just bring it back, maybe a little bit. And I don't understand why. Titus and TaylorMade and Shrixon and all the other manufacturers can't say, okay, we're going to give you this. We're going to give you this. Mm-hmm. 
I don't think it hurts their sales at all. No. Guys, the country club's still going to buy Titleist and the exactly. balls they want to play. I agree with you. I've, and I've said that to Titleist. I had a big, long chat with Wally Uline a few years ago on that. But he, they're, they're scared of the unknown. That's, the, that's their issue. Yeah. But people are still going to have to buy golf balls. Yeah. And they're still going to buy the brand that they're loyal to. So you still and you still play, let them play the golf ball of modern day and you bring back the pros. The problem is, where do you draw that line? You know, college players, amateur players who are going to turn pro, they want to prepare by the tour and play that golf. I don't know. You can put a hard line in the sand, you know, if you're a professional. What about this one? This is a this is a good argument. What about the amateur that qualifies for a PGA tour event and he's got to switch golf balls? Mm -hmm. Well, you know what? You get suck it up and switch golf balls. That's oh, yeah. what it is. I mean, you just play by the rules of each tournament. I mean, that, my argument, counter argument to that would just be, well, you know, going in, what kind of tournament this is going to be, whether it's modern ball yeah. or old ball or whatever ball, you know, or clubs or whatever, anything. You, you know, going yeah, in. Maybe that's it. Yeah. But does it? But getting back to our original point, does it fix what's going on now, which is basically overpowering yeah. every golf course we play? Um, I don't know. Well, I, I do worry that, uh, and I ask this question rhetorically to a lot of people, where are they going to play in 10 years' time if this continues? Well, they're going, they're going to play the same places. They're just going to pitch and putt to every green. Well, exactly. You it, know, it, they it, might as well take the two, three, four, five, six, seven iron out of the bag. Yeah, and that diminishes the product. And that, that's exactly. what I don't get. I don't understand the officials' reluctance to do something about this because it, it, the product isn't as good or it isn't going to be as well, good. You know, in my there you opinion. go. There you yeah. go. Well, you know what? In bottom line is that we're all after the same long-term goal here is to keep this game healthy, the game that you and I grew up with, the one that we still think about laying in bed at night. Mm. The You write about it. I talk about it now. It's it's We're just trying to keep it healthy and continue to grow. Growing is another subject altogether. But to continue it to, to be played – and loved around the world the way it is today or was yesterday. That's that's what we're all trying to you know achieve here. Curtis, that seems like a brilliant place to stop. I know I've I've kept you on here for just about an hour and a half, and I thank you for your time. It's uh, as you well know, I think already one of the great joys is uh, talking to people like you about golf. It's been brilliant. Thanks for your time. Well, you know we get, and, and I appreciate you having me on because we, you know, we get to know each other over the years, and and you know the relationships with players and media and, 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 and all the above. And it's all one big happy family most times. And I appreciate that as well. Great. Thanks again. Thank you, John. And that wraps up episode 41 of The Thing About Golf. And if you enjoyed that chat with Curtis Strange half as much as I did, then you enjoyed it an awful lot. A big thanks to both John Huggan and Curtis Strange for their time and effort there. Now, I hope you've made the effort to subscribe to the show because on our next episode, we're going to meet a truly unique figure in the golf world. Andrea Watson is the general manager at Yarra Yarra Golf Club, the only female general manager of a Sandbelt golf facility. And that gives her, as you'd expect, a very different perspective. Golf's gone through a radical change because of COVID. Uh, that's, that's without a doubt. But wondering, looking at why it's gone through that radical change is really important. And I think that's something that the, the golf industry is not really addressing. That's one of the game's most interesting administrators, next time on The Thing About Golf.